0: Das ist Berlin Berlin die ewig junge Stadt das ist Berlin Berlin die meine liebe hat genau im Mittepunkt der Welt hat sie der Herrgotin
1: gestellt In the 1970s and 80s an old joke echoed through the streets of East Berlin that the state police the Stasi had such a stranglehold over the population, you never had to worry about getting so drunk that you couldn't tell the taxi driver where you lived. He already knew. No other city had more impact on global events in the 20th century than Berlin. It was there in August 1914 that Kaiser Wilhelm II declared war on Russia. Four years later to the month, it was there the Weimar Republic was ushered in, marking a shift towards a liberalism that placed the city at the centre of the art world. No matter what the form, be it Bertolt Brecht and Max Reinhardt in theatre, Christa Winslow, Anna Elizabeth Weislaut and Klaus Mann, who were among the very first authors anywhere in the world to publish openly gay literature, or Kurt Weill's songs, Arnold Schoenberg's twelve-tone composition, architect Walter Gropius, who with the Bauhaus School established modern design, or in cinema, with the expressionist dramas of Fritz Lang, F.W. Murnau and G.W. Pabst, Berlin offered bold and new directions.
0: Die Stadt hat schon besungen, der heut liegt tief
1: Yet this was the same Berlin where Adolf Hitler assumed power in 1933. And nine years later, it was in Berlin's quiet suburb of Wannsee that the Nazis drew up the blueprint for the Holocaust. Defeated in 1945, Berlin was cut in two, thus becoming the emblem of a Cold War that divided the world between freedom and totalitarianism. That conflict lasted until 1989, when Berliners tore down the wall and the city became one. Germany was reunited, making it the most influential, political, economic and industrial partner in the European Union. And if you visit Berlin today, there is hardly a street corner that does not whisper of awesome events or echo with terrible secrets. Das
0: ist Berlin. Weint. Und lacht.
1: The organizing principle of any state is the power it holds over its own citizens. And one way of executing that power is by spying on the population. The Cold War saw one half of Berlin living in fear of being overrun by Soviet tanks with the other half existing under a state of constant surveillance. And that phenomenon stretches back some 5,000 years to ancient Egypt, when the pharaohs employed soldiers to flush out seditious tribes. In ancient Rome, centurions were organised to collect wheat from the corners of the empire. Called frumentari, from the Latin word frumentum meaning wheat, they were then seconded to spy on the population. All of Europe's rulers since have followed suit. The Spanish Inquisition, designed by Bernardo Gui, Bishop of Ladeve hunted down and executed those suspected of apostasy and heresy. In Elizabethan England, the Queen sanctioned the Stationers' Company to search and destroy any premises printing papers deemed to be treasonous. The Tsar's secret police sent into exile any person regarded as a threat to the Romanovs. in 1950, the Stasi was a police force within a police force, exercising a near-limitless control over the population, accessing every facet of their waking, sleeping, public and private lives. The goal was to know everything about everybody, and so effective were they that there was no such thing as a private life. The state had killed it. The method, called Zersetzung or decomposition, was designed to wear down the population and intimidate them into spying on each other. Colleagues, neighbours, friends and families. Records showed that by the mid-1980s, an estimated one in seven people were informants. And the population was left in such a state of submission that if the regime changed the laws of mathematics, the people would likely have believed them. Do you remember writing in your diary, freedom is the freedom to say two plus two equals four? Yes. How many fingers am I holding up, Mr. And if the party says there are not four, but five, then how many? Five. Released in 2006, The Lives of Others, written and directed by first time feature filmmaker Florian Henkel von Donnersmark, tells the story of Stasi agent Gerd Wiesler, played by Ulrich Mua, who was ordered a spy on playwright Georg Dreimann, played by Sebastian Koch. Dreimann's dramas extol the party line and he is regarded by the authorities as the exemplar of state writing. And yet, Wiesler suspects Draymond of not being what he seems. Clearance to put the author under surveillance results in the Minister of Culture, Bruno Hempf, played by Thomas Tiene, clapping his eyes on Draymond's partner, Christa Maria Seeland, played by Martina Gellick. Hemph's authority is so corrupt, he uses it to sexually coerce any woman he wants. So, Hemph's real interest in Draymond's loyalty is not political, but carnal. Von Donnersmark chooses to set his story in 1984, suggesting an allusion to George Orwell's masterpiece. But no, the director had another reason, as he explains here on the Blu-ray commentary track.
0: 1984 was a special year in the history of the Cold War. Everything was kind of dominated by Russia. And uh, in 1984, Andropov, of whom many people had hoped that he'd be a great performer, died. And a new Secretary General of the Soviet Communist Party was elected, chenyenko And he was something of a Stalinist. He died very shortly after his election as well. In March 1985, and Gorbachev rose to power. But this is set in in that period of that short reign of chenyenko where where a cold Stalinist wind blew through the entire Eastern Bloc again. <laughs>
1: the opening section to Ludwig van Beethoven's 23rd Piano Sonata, better known as the Appassionata, Sonata, performed on this occasion by Daniel Barenboim. Ask any concert pianist and they will tell you Beethoven's piece is one of the most challenging of all compositions. Its structure is so intricate, its melodic shifts so sudden, its crescendos and diminuendos so severe, it leaves the pianist in a state of emotional exhaustion. And it is this very piece of music that sparked von Donnersmark's imagination and inspired him to write the script. Here is von Donnersmark on The Charlie Rose Show in 2007.
0: It all came from from a quote by Vladimir Lenin, who had said to his friend Maxim Gorky, I I don't want to listen to my favourite piece of music, the appassionata, anymore, because when I do, it makes me want to stroke people's heads and tell them gentle, sweet, nice things. But I have to smash in those heads, crush them without mercy. Uh, to finish my revolution. And I thought He
1: said Beethoven
0: softens me. To me that was one of those one of those statements that really contained all the glory and all the baseness of mankind.
1: Lenin's remarks add another layer to an already richly textured story. Where Beethoven touched the world with his music while gradually going deaf, surveillance expert Wiesler spends all his time listening to the world yet has become detached from the world. In the film's opening section, when we see Wiesler listening to what is going on in Draymond's apartment, with the headphones, monitors and cassette recorders, he has been so utterly overtaken by the state's ideology that he appears as nothing more than an extension of its technology. And soon it becomes clear that it is the agent himself who is yearning to break free.
0: It was uh, the story of an ideologue who somehow loses faith in his ideology.
1: Everything about Wiesler is trapped. He lives alone in an inhospitable Plattenbauten or high-rise tower block. His apartment is devoid of personal effects. The clothes he wears are anonymously grey. His face never conveys expression, even during sex with women whose company he pays for. Most telling of all, Wiesler spends almost all of his time wearing headphones, supposedly listening to the lives of others. But, in actual fact, the headphones leave him deaf to the state's crimes. With that in mind, let us think of Beethoven once again. While Wiesler spends most of his time listening to Draymond's conversations, it is only when Draymond sits down to play the piano that Wiesler actually begins to hear what is being expressed. Sonata for a Good Man Written for the film by Oscar-winning composer Gabriel Yarad More than just the film's soundtrack, it serves as a turning point in the drama. It is only with the suicide of one of his closest friends that Dreymann begins to question the state's authority. As for Wiesler, he finally begins to recognise the suffering inflicted by the state. The sequence is carefully presented so that as Dreymann plays the piano in his apartment, and Wiesler listens in from above in the attic, the camera tracks around both men in the same direction. And from then on, both men will walk the same path. The film was met with near-universal praise, winning the Oscar, BAFTA and César for Best Foreign Language Picture, as well as Three Felixes, including Best European Film. In addition, from an initial budget of 1.7 million euro, it grossed in more than 75 million worldwide. Now I said it was met with near-universal praise, because it did come in for considerable criticism from people who endured the misery of the East German state. In fact, many members of the film's cast were victims of the Stasi surveillance and intimidation. After the wall came down and Germany was reunified, all citizens were entitled to access their files. And in Mua's case, he made the very sad discovery that his own wife had been recruited to spy on him. Worse, in the years immediately after the fall of the Wall, just as several decades before, when many Nazis had been absorbed into post-war administrative, executive and judiciary branches, as well as science and technology programmes, former Stasi agents were snapped up by companies in the West and given plush positions precisely because their experience in monitoring data could be put to good use in the private sector. For those left behind, the fall of the Wall had a different effect. Here is Fontana's mark once again on the Charlie Rose show
0: it was it was incredible how how extreme the reaction was how people would stay in the audience for for, for an hour after the film was finishing still crying um, with all the things that they, that they only remembered through the film um, and uh, very often they just come up to us and tell us these just their own stories and often they'd tell us that this was the first time that they'd ever told those stories and um, people would also come up to us and start justifying themselves for things that they'd done as if as if we could somehow give them absolution.
1: (laughs) I do not believe those people, be they ecstasy agents or informers, were looking for absolution. I believe they were protesting their innocence in the belief that what they had done was morally correct. I mean, why do any of us do anything if only because we are able to rationalise what we are doing is right? And even if we do sense that it may be wrong, we recontextualize the act into a different, most likely larger, less personal, more political, historical, sociological sphere, all so we can justify it. And for those crimes to remain hidden, all it takes is for good people to do nothing. Here is former CIA agent Edward Snowden, whom some people think should be tried for treason, while others regard him as a courageous whistleblower, speaking in Laura Poitras's Oscar-winning documentary Citizen Four.
0: There's an infrastructure in place in the United States and worldwide that NSA has built in cooperation with other governments as well that intercepts basically every digital communication, every radio communication, every analog communication that it has sensors in place to detect. And uh, with these capabilities, basically the vast majority of human and uh, computer-to-computer communications, device-based communications, which sort of inform the relationships between humans, um, are automatically ingested.
1: But it is not only through the likes of the CIA that our lives are being monitored. Facebook, Google, Instagram, are not only violating the laws of privacy, the way they harvest the data and then sell it is having a corrosive impact on democracy. Here is Dr. Shoshana Zuboff, author of Surveillance Capitalism, talking last week with Kara Swisher on Swisher's Recode Decode podcast. So this is now a new axis of social inequality, knowledge inequality and the inequality of decision rights, the inequality of our capacity to be autonomous and self-determining. You cannot have a well-functioning democracy with massive inequalities of knowledge and power. Many survivors of the Stasi have criticised the lives of others for being too lenient on Wiesler. That such a character did not, and indeed could not, exist within a totalitarian state. Chilling proof of this can be found in the book Stasiland, published in 2003 by Australian author Anna Funder. A meticulously researched account of what life was like under the totalitarian regime, Funder's book has been translated into over 20 languages. And here is the author in 2012 detailing the literally carcinogenic suffering the Stasi inflicted upon citizens. The sine qua non of the German democratic was the vicious war that it waged on its own citizens whom it turned into traitors or asocials or most spectacularly negative enemy elements by the stroke of a bureaucratic pen. The Stasi used To irradiate people and objects with radiation, uh, with very damaging consequences. But they invented personal Geiger counters uh, that could be strapped to the body. So a Stasi agent in Mufti would be able to trace, follow you, uh, kind of with something ticking on them, literally, uh, as you went through the crowd, also to follow a manuscript if it was making its way to West Germany for publication and so on. The Lives of Others starts out with a very clear-eyed view of life under the Stasi. But because von Donnersmarck's theme is of an ideologue abandoning his ideology, it ends up with a somewhat romantic thesis about a totalitarian state. Totalitarianism is just that. Total. Already a secret police force within the state police. Within the Stasi itself, there was yet another layer of agents spying on the agents. Which means that any act of clemency or humanity was noted, reported and punished. Which means that someone like Wiesler could not, or would not have assisted someone like Drayman. But despite that shortcoming, the lives of others can stand alongside the likes of Juan José Campanella's The Secret in Their Eyes, Luis Puenzo's The Official Story, Alan J. Picoula's All the President's Men, The Lost Honor of Caterina Blum, directed by Volker Schlondorf and Margareta von Trotta, Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation, Francesco Rossi's Illustrious Corpses, Bernardo Bertolucci's The Conformist, and, appropriately enough, all the way back to the cinema of the Weimar Republic with Fritz Lang's Dr. Mabuza films.